Hello, folks. This is Princess. You are listening to the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share with your friends. It's tough. We're in a very tough spot. I think that what we're doing right now is a great benefit and virtue because it's an end around between this whole corrupt informational system, media system. We claim to believe in a God who spoke the universe into existence and literally raised himself from the dead. And yet we're not going to believe that anything else exists in the spirit realm, even though his word tells us that they do. Their bodies weren't permitted to go to sleep like humans do, and they weren't permitted to go to heaven. So they wander the earth. You know, I've seen the eyes turn black to unknown tongues being spoken. These giants would live way up in the highlands. The young graves, the young men would hide up in the trees and wait for one of these 12 footers to come walking down the path and they would jump on them and kill them and drag them back to the village and the village would feast on the body. Then people start to get weapons, they start to get armor, they start to build cities, they start to fortify their cities. Now, God looks down and there's violence everywhere. The battle, this war that we are at, is not against each other. It's against these principalities and these rulers and these archons in the high places. It's really worthwhile to read the Bible yourself. Fear is one of the primary drivers of mind control. Because we have to take every thought captive and resist fear. You're going to have a testimony that is a justice case against the kingdom of darkness. Welcome back to the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. I am your host, Rod. Thank you so much for being here. This is the first time I'm re-spinning an episode that was done in the past. Dr. Laura Sanger's been on a number of times, but this episode is from May of last year. Spiritual Mapping, the Nephilim Agenda, and we cover so much more. Dr. Laura Sanger wrote a book, The Roots of the Federal Reserve, how the Nephilim agenda may be connected to the Federal Reserve. For all the new listeners who may not have heard of Dr. Laura Sanger, we are going to do a deep dive. Buckle your seatbelt. This is a wild ride. And if you guys already heard this episode when I released it last year, it is definitely worth a second listen. Dr. Laura Sanger's research, this conversation just flows one of my favorite interviews. And there is plenty more content to come in the near future. And I'm so happy that you guys are taking this ride with me here on the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. I'm ready to re-spin this episode. Are you guys ready? Let's go. So I have a special guest here, Dr. Laura Sanger. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm very excited to be with you on your birthday. I feel that it is an honor to be part of your special day. So happy birthday. 
thank you. And this is the best way to spend it, doing what I love to do. <laughs> and, and just walking into the stranger things of Christianity and some of the hidden information that a lot of the body of Christ is looking for around the world. So it's, it's a great way to spend a birthday. And it's your first time here on the show. Tell us a little bit about how you became the amazing woman you are today. I guess I can start with uh, just my professional background. So I'm a psychologist and I've had the privilege of working in four different VA medical hospitals um, throughout my career. And so I specialized in, you know, chronic mental illness, personality disorders, addictions, and adolescent treatment um, and working with veterans, although I didn't work with them my entire career, um, the time that I spent working with veterans was uh, incredibly special to me because they, obviously, they have put so much on the line um, for our freedoms, and it was a way for me to give back to them. So that was um, an incredible part of my career path. Um, and then I, you know, I was in um I did private practice, but I also worked in um, substance abuse treatment program as well. But I retired from doing clinical work in 2013 and then transitioned more towards uh, sports psychology. And I've also been, um, gosh, probably for 26 years now, on some level, an advocate for children and teenagers. My husband and I were involved in youth ministry for a long time at our church and I just love working with kids and youth. And so that's um, been a part of my journey as well. But, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I'm kind of one of those people that absolutely loves to learn. And, you know, I got my PhD in clinical psychology and then a master's in theology because I went to Fuller Theological Seminary. And after I graduated, I wanted to go on and you know, do a postdoc in neuropsychology and you know, continue wow. my education. And thankfully, my husband had the wisdom to say, let's have you find ways that aren't so expensive to learn. <laughs> so um, I just am a learner. I love I love to pour into things. I've kind of had this naturally inquisitive mind. So I'm constantly formulating questions in my head to research and and actually, I've been involved in research um, in some capacity since 1989. So when I, uh, I was working at the VA Medical Center in La Jolla, California, and I was um, in the psychiatry department, and uh, we were doing research on what's called the extrapyramidal side effects of neuroleptic medication. And so essentially, we were working with people that had schizophrenia, you know, that were on medication. And sometimes that medication would cause involuntary movements throughout their body. So we were just testing for that. And I absolutely fell in love with research. And so from that point forward, uh, research has really been a part of my journey uh, in, in all sorts of different ways. And I brought that skill set into writing The Roots of the Federal Reserve, which is a book that I wrote and released. Um, it was published in November of 2020. And it's interesting because the the journey of writing, I mean, I'm sure every author has a very unique journey. Um, mine just was um, unique as well in the sense that I, you know, I never intended to write a book on the Federal Reserve. In fact, I started out uh, just, I, I felt like the Holy Spirit was nudging me to write what's called a spiritual mapping prayer brief on the Federal Reserve. Um, and so that's what I did. Now, 
most people aren't familiar with spiritual mapping too well. Have you? Do you know what that is, or have you heard that term before, or have any of your guests spoken about it? No, I can't say that we have, but we definitely need some information on that. I, I don't think any of the guests will be familiar with how the terms applied and what the details are thereof. Okay, so I'll I'll just provide kind of a brief overview, but essentially, you know. I use these spiritual mapping concepts in what I wrote in the book. Um, so essentially what spiritual mapping is, is it it consists of doing research on the physical, social, and spiritual pulse of a society or an institution or a people group, you know, a city, a state, whatever it is that is the focus of that mapping assignment. And um, it involves digging through history because what we wanna do is we wanna uncover what are those ancient roots of defilement. And so there's three components to spiritual mapping. There's the reconnaissance component, there's research, and then there's informed intercession. And I actually like to do all three. And I've been involved in spiritual mapping for um, coming up on 26 years now. And uh, so anyways, with the reconnaissance, what we do is we'll send a team of people out onto the land itself, kind of like what Moses did when he sent the 12 spies into Canaan. Or another example um, is when Joshua sent the two spies into Jericho. And so, you know, part of this team of people, um, they're particularly gifted in what we call discernment. And so you know, they get onto the land and they, they can actually feel um, what has happened on the land um, in previous years or previous generations. And so, you know, the, for those of your um, listeners who maybe aren't um, real familiar with what discernment is, another way to describe it is, you know, the land emits frequencies. And so, you know, some of the people on our team can um, sense what's happened. We even at times um, have had people that can actually hear the land, like hear what it's trying to communicate, which I am just so fascinated by. (laughs) And then we also have people that are gifted in being able to see into the spiritual realm or see into different dimensions. And so anyways, we'll take notes, you know, as we're out on the land um, with what the Holy Spirit is showing us. And then we pair that with a research component. So that involves, you know, digging through historical documents. We will um, look at demographic data. We might even interview some of the local people to see, you know, what their perspective is as far as what's happened. Um, And then also we have found that looking at old newspaper articles can be incredibly helpful in providing um, some good information. So Anyways, we take all of that together with the reconnaissance notes and we write up what's called a a spiritual mapping prayer brief. And that's usually between maybe five to 10 pages. And what we're doing is we're identifying these targeted prayer strategy because we want to inform intercession. And what we found over the years is there's four types of iniquity that can establish a stronghold over a territory. And that is sexual immorality, idolatry, broken covenants, and then bloodshed. And so what we want to do through the reconnaissance and also through the research is um, identify, have any of these iniquities been, you know, committed on the land itself? And, you know, ultimately what we want to do through spiritual mapping is we want to equip people who are intercessors that can go and pray on the land and cleanse the land, you know, uproot 
wicked structures through our prayers. And then, you know, we want to cut off any curses that have been spoken and we want to release blessings because the ultimately the goal is we want to see transformation take place. We want to see people set free from bondages. We want to see, you know, strongholds removed um, so that people can really step into their full God-given intended purpose. So anyways, that's what spiritual mapping is. And so back in 2014, I just kept getting this nudge from the Holy Spirit to do some research on the Federal Reserve and write up this prayer brief. And so I did, and we gathered some intercessors and prayed, you know, through some of the targeted prayer strategies. And I really thought my assignment was done, you know, after that. But I would say over the next maybe year and a half, the Lord just kept elbowing me, nudging me is what I call it. <laughs> and to get back to studying or researching the Federal Reserve. And so finally, in 2016, I picked it back up. And for the next year, I was researching and writing, but I really didn't know what I was writing. I, you know, at the time, I was like, Lord, this is way longer than a, a mapping, a spiritual mapping prayer brief. What, what am I doing here? And finally, in 2017, I gained some clarity that he was having me write a book. And so um, I wrote this book in what I call real time, which means in chapter five, I had no idea what kind of twists and turns this investigative journey would take. In fact, I really didn't even know if any of the pieces would come together. It was like this act of obedience each day when I would wake up. I'm like, Lord, you know, what are we going to do today? What are you going to show me? How are these pieces going to connect? And um, again, I really didn't know that the dots would connect in the end. But my constant prayer was uh, Jeremiah 33, 3, which is called to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Yeah. And I have to say, I lived that scripture for four years. It took me four years to research and write the book. And I have 553 references in the book. And so I just poured over all sorts of, you know, material, whether it was the you know, biblical record or extra biblical manuscripts or ancient documents or, you know, article, research articles, all sorts of things. And so when all was said and done, the research that I did for the book, it spanned from the dawn of humanity to our current day. And I was able to identify this Nephilim agenda that has pretty much defiled our monetary system and basically every institution in our land. And so you know, I was able to trace the agenda, the Nephilim agenda from the days of Noah to our current day. And, you know, one of the things that the Lord has um, asked me to walk in is Ephesians 5.11, which says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And so I'm always grateful for opportunities like this where I'm able to, you know, speak to a new audience because I know that the message that the Lord's given me right now is to awaken people to this Nephilim agenda and how it impacts us today. So I take great inspiration from something Thomas Jefferson once wrote too, and it's um, educate and inform the whole mass of people. They're the only sure reliance for the preservation of our liberty. So that's how I got to where I am right now. That's amazing. Already a couple of things that you said are significant. I was just talking with Gary Wayne and I traveled outside of Philadelphia down through Wilmington, Delaware. 
And as soon as I got close to Wilmington, Delaware, I felt a heaviness. This, this, mm. Why would I be filled with, you know, this kind of anxiety or this, this foggy heaviness that was over my head? And as soon as the, the skyline there couldn't be seen in my rear view mirror on 95, it lifted. And I've noticed throughout my life, there's areas I'll travel into and I'll feel this distinct feeling that's really hard to put emotion to. And that's yeah. something that I talk about with people and the church, as I know it, at least here in Southeastern Pennsylvania, we're unaware of how to connect these things. So when you talk about spiritual mapping, it's imperative that we slow down and we listen to these kind of things. And like a Berean with all readiness of mind, studying the scriptures and, and letting things fall into place. So this gets me so excited. I love, I love talking <laughs> about this. So that, that connected with me. I want to ask through the spiritual mapping and those who are sensitive in the spirit, when you talk about tracing this Nephilim agenda, how did you kind of like connect those dots? Can you give us a couple examples of how God like revealed this to you? You talked about writing the book and not really knowing what was happening at the time, but then it came together. Was there like a significant nudge or a dream or a vision or just an a word from someone else? Really all of the above, because, you know, it was a four-year process for me. And I'm trying to remember, you know, the, the first, um, probably the first connection or exposure to the Nephilim that I had, other than what I read, you know, I've read over the years in Genesis 6, was I listened to Rob Skiba. He um, was interviewing an intercessor. His name is Timothy Bentz. And Timothy had um, had just returned from a trip somewhere in Europe. I can't remember where. But, you know, the Lord sends him on assignment from, from what he said in this podcast um, to uproot ancient Canaanite altars. And, you know, being a spiritual mapper, he was speaking my language. And so I was very intrigued to listen to this. And, you know, it's like, I'll, you know, we all do this. We listen to podcasts as we're exercising or doing yard work or cleaning our house or driving or whatever. And so I just was, I remember exercising, listening to this podcast and I was like, oh my gosh, because he began talking about Jekyll Island and some of the experiences he had there because the Lord had sent him there to do some intercession on his way home from a European trip. And he had no intention to end up in Jekyll Island, but the Holy Spirit, you know, had a perfect time and a place for him to be. And so he was obedient and went there. And anyways, he, he told the story of what he experienced being there and some of the artifacts he saw and it really intrigued me. And so I think I listened to that after I had written the prayer brief. So that would have been in 2014. And that's part of what the Lord used to nudge me along the way is um, he would remind me of that podcast. And um, so that's kind of where I started is that there was just this little bit of hint that maybe the Nephilim are somehow connected to the Federal Reserve. And, you know, Timothy just expressed his own experience. There was no like historical connection or anything necessarily in the Bible that he was tying to. And I think that's where um, the Lord launched me is um, I absolutely love the word of God. I, I see it as this treasure chest. 
And when you open it up, like if you can glean treasure just from the top. So just by opening up the word of God and reading it, you know, you're, you're going to get richness just from that experience. But my goodness, when you start digging into the depth of the word of God, it's like reaching into that treasure chest and you realize there is no bottom to this. Like I could spend the rest of my life, which I plan to studying the word of God and I will not exhaust the amount of treasure that's with that contained within it. And so I learned to study the word of God in, in depth. Um, I would say in my college years when I was at UC San Diego, I was part of InterVarsity. And I remember we had this trip, it was spring break and we went to Catalina Island, which, you know, is an island off the coast of California. It's gorgeous. And I, at the time was, you know, I loved to lay out in the sun and get a tan. I was an athlete and, you know, I love to play all sorts of different sports. So here we're on this camp on Catalina Island, and we are studying the word of God, no joke, for eight hours a day. And I am in this wow. cabin with like 20 other people, and we're, it's called a manuscript study through the book of Mark. And we have concordances, we have Bible dictionaries, we have all sorts of different translations and all these different colored pens, and we're making connections. And the the word of God came alive to me like never before. And it absolutely hooked me. It hooked me on researching the word of God is what happened on that island. And, you know, when most college age people are off doing things on (laughs) spring break, having fun. I'm in this cabin with 20 other people studying the word of God for eight hours. And I had the time of my life. (laughs) Like I've read things over a period of times and there'd be a select thing I was going through in life where the words would jump off the page at me and I'd go, yes, how did I not see that? And it would make me alive. I know. That's the best. That is the best. And that's why the hunger continues to grow because, you know, the Bible says work out your salvation with fear and trembling and to study to Mm -hmm. show yourself well approved. And this is all like this godly advice that the world doesn't understand. But like you said, a a few minutes back, it is our goal to bring people this kind of information. And my goal is to get people to read the Bible again and ask questions about it. Honestly, if just a handful of people had an experience like what you just depicted when you were at school and, you know, like, uh, me on Friday night, I'm sitting home studying through the Septuagint and writing down weird questions I have for people. And for a young college person to be spending time in a cabin studying the Word of God just shows the character, the calling, and the anointing. And God calls all of us. It's His will that none of us perish. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that that's why this podcast is cool in its own right, just because it's going to cover the chasm. Being on the receiving end, of that kind of information is, is amazing. So being able to kind of be like this little mini bridge for someone else, uh, it's an honor to plant and water a seed. So Laura, I want to ask you, we covered the spiritual mapping, but what is the Nephilim agenda? Yeah. So the Nephilim agenda, it was launched during the days of Noah. And what it is, is it's, it's the plan to defile the human genome through propagating a hybrid race. And the Mm -hmm. purpose of it is to overthrow God's kingdom. Now, you know, I laid the groundwork as far as um, how I view the word of God and how I love to dig in. Well, what the Lord did is he used that 
in me uh, to lead me on this treasure hunt through scripture um, over the four years that I was writing this book. And so he showed me that, you know, the Nephilim agenda, it has its origins in the seed war that's in Genesis three. And there's, um, this is verse 14 and 15. I'll read. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what we have here is after the fall, Yahweh declared war between the seed of Eve, which is humanity, and the seed of Satan. And one day Eve's seed would crush Satan. And this was, you know, this was the prophetic declaration of the coming Messiah. So Satan's strategy was to contaminate the seed of the woman by altering the genetic code of humans. And this is where the fallen sons of God become integral in Satan's strategy. And we can read about that um, both in Genesis 6, but also in the extra biblical text of the book of Enoch. And so what we learn from those texts is that, you know, these fallen sons of God They chose to leave their heavenly abode and they invaded the earth realm by descending upon Mount Hermon. And from that point, they lusted after the daughters of men. You know, they they mated with them and they defiled the human genome by bringing forth a hybrid race of giants known as the Nephilim. So then one of the things that um, the Lord impressed upon me as I was writing, um, you know, in doing research, you're always looking for, you know, what can you contribute to the body of literature that's out there already that's kind of a missing piece or there's a gap in understanding. And so one of the things I felt like the Lord was um, directing me towards is, you know, given this ethereal nature of the Nephilim, I felt it was important to develop this um, set of proposed criteria that would help advance our ability to discern the presence of Nephilim traits within an individual. And so that's wow. what I did in chapter 13 of my book. I identify four physical traits and 19 behavioral characteristics of the Nephilim and their giant offspring. And I, I realized that, you know, one of the reasons that's so important is because we, we cannot be deceived in thinking that the Nephilim only roamed the earth during the days of antiquity. There are Nephilim hosts that are alive today. And so what a Nephilim host is, and I coined this term in my book. And so um, what I mean by a Nephilim host is someone who's 100% human, but has partnered with the spiritual forces of darkness to carry out the Nephilim agenda. And many of them are actually the titans of global governance. And so Nephilim hosts, you know, they're, they're intent on destroying the followers of Jesus while at the same time, you know, controlling the masses through domination and intimidation. And at the core of the Nephilim agenda is really this goal to strip us of our humanity because they hate the fact that we are created in the image of God. And so they want to defile our human genome. And I think it's really important for us to understand that there's there's really no difference between the Nephilim agenda and the globalist agenda. Well, there is, but they are at least, they're serving the same end goal and that's the total domination of humanity. And, you know, when we think about it, it's really tyranny on the highest, grandest scale. And, you know, as I talk about this Nephilim agenda, the origins were in Genesis three, but when we think about the globalist agenda, it actually goes all the way back to the life of Nimrod. 
uh, you know, Nimrod was the first attempt for Satan to create an antichrist. And, you know, Nimrod was, he, he really fueled humanism among the citizens of Babel. And, you know, that, that post flood population, they really had this sense of like the self-sufficient pride that arose in them. And, they labored towards opening this dimensional gateway or a portal, um, you know, through the Tower of Babel, because ultimately what they were after was to gain the secret knowledge and wisdom through interactions with the gods. And so it was really interesting. That was one of the treasure hunts the Lord took me on is digging into the life of Nimrod, because what we see is that Nimrod actually, you know, through the progression of his rebellion towards God, he actually becomes a hybrid or he becomes a giant or a demigod. And that's what the Greeks are talking about. Like the mighty men of valor, you know, those of the great reputation, right? These demigods. Now I think mm-hmm. it's interesting the Nephilim, Nephilim host being pure human, but being in agreement with the dark entities, the, the fallen angels or the Nephilim. Um, now, do you think Nimrod was a Nephilim host and then became a hybrid or a demigod? And, address that old age old question for us and how were there giants in the earth after the flood? Yeah, I, um, this is one of the things that I go into, um, depth in my book. I have a chapter called the age old question and I find this fascinating, um, because, you know, there's, there's two primary theories that would explain, um, how were there giants on the earth after the flood? So there's single incursion and multiple incursion, and in a nutshell, you know, an, another incursion of the same magnitude as what we see in Genesis 6, I don't think can be substantiated, but that doesn't mean that there weren't other incursions. And, you know, one example would be in the Mesopotamian culture, they had a practice of sacred marriages between a goddess and a king. And so that would be an example of another incursion. Uh, But where it becomes, I think, even more fascinating is to consider the single incursion theory. So that would say that there was only that one incursion where the fallen sons of God mated with the daughters of men that we read about in Genesis 6. Well, then how were there giants on the earth after the flood? And the key to understanding the the single incursion theory is epigenetics. And it actually... um, explains how Nimrod went from being a a Nephilim host or 100% human that partnered with the spiritual forces of darkness to carry out this Nephilim agenda, but then how he became a Nephilim or became this hybrid. And so kind of in a nutshell, um, epigenetics is, you know, it's the impact that our thoughts and lifestyle choices have on our body, soul, and spirit but they also can affect our generations. And so the prefix epi, it means on top of. So epigenetics is the set of instructions that sits on top of the genome. And there's uh, something known as epigenetic markers. And those are, you can think about those like light switches that either turn on or off a gene. And so, you know, as I mentioned, um, there is uh, a transgenerational component to epigenetics and there is a ton of really fascinating research. And I'll mention one study um, that I have in my book. And it's from a group of Swedish researchers. Um, The lead researcher's name is Pembry. And this was back in 2006. And 
What they found is that the eating and lifestyle choices of prepubescent boys actually affects their progeny for two generations. And so what they found is that boys who either overate and or smoked around the age of 10 actually had children and grandchildren with significantly shorter lifespans, which I just find remarkable. And it, it makes a lot of sense because the Bible talks about, you know, how generational iniquity um, can affect generations um, moving forward. You know, the curses of the fathers can be upon the sons for three generations. And so here we have science actually demonstrating this. And, you know, with this epigenetics, um, it, it really helps us understand that our choices, which are considered epigenetic signals, they can actually alter the expression of our genes through those epigenetic markers that either turn on or off our gene. And that can be passed on to our children and grandchildren. So, you know, our bad choices become their bad predispositions. And once I began to understand that, this is when the Holy Spirit just had so much fun leading me on this treasure hunt because there's two particular passages in Genesis that really began to unlock this revelation for me. And one of them is Genesis 6, 9. And it says, and these are the origins of Noah. Noah was a just man being perfect in his generation. Noah was well-pleasing to God. So when we think about, you know, being perfect in his generation, what that means is that Noah's genealogy, so his genome wasn't corrupted by the Nephilim. Um, And so that means, you know, he was 100% human, as were his wife and sons. But it's possible, you know, that one or more of the wives of his sons had the Nephilim gene. And, you know, I go into more detail in my book, but, you know, if we think about Ham's life, you know, we can see throughout scripture, this pattern of sexual perversion in his life. And so it's not... Uh, beyond possibility that he may have chosen a wife that had the Nephilim gene, but it just was in a dormant um, stage. You know, she had an epigenetic marker that turned it off. But what could happen is if there's a curse that's released in her bloodline, that could actually turn on the Nephilim gene. And that's what we see in the life of Nimrod. And so you know, Ham's bad choices become Nimrod's bad predispositions. And then he acted upon that, which actually unlocked the Nephilim gene. We see this um, come kind of to full light in a in a passage, uh, Genesis 10, 8. And when you read it in the English, um, you don't really pick up on it. It's not until you begin digging further. So Genesis 10, 8 says, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. So, you know, as I mentioned um, before, kind of the foundation of my digging into scripture was um, that retreat on Catalina Island. And it kind of fostered in me this desire to understand more fully what is it that scripture is trying to communicate. And so what I did in my book is... um, I performed what I like to call an archaeological dig on language. Um, And what I mean by that is I just, I looked at the etymology of the word. So what are the, what's the original language that scripture is written in? You know, in the Old Testament, largely it's written in Hebrew and the New Testament largely is written in Greek. 
And so looking at the original language and the meaning. And so if we apply that to this passage, um, first of all, Nimrod's name means rebellion. And so that's interesting to keep in mind. Rebellion is actually a hallmark trait of the Nephilim, you know, because they're the seed of the fallen sons of God who rebelled um, and left heaven. And then uh, if we if we consider that phrase, he began, as in he began to be a mighty one on the earth, that this is actually really fascinating. So the Hebrew word for he began is halal, and it means to profane, defile, or pollute oneself through ritual or sexual means. Now, there is no way you read that in the English, you're not going to get that, right? You're not going to get that understanding. So once I saw that, um, some of the pieces started coming together. Now, another um, Hebrew word in this passage for mighty one is gabor. And that means uh, mighty, strong, a champion, giant, chief, tyrant, and impetuous soldier. And it comes from the root word gabar, which means to prevail, to be strong, to show oneself mighty, and to act proudly towards God. And the first mention of gabor in the Bible is actually in Genesis 6-4, and that's when it's referencing the Nephilim. Now, I should say that not every time that the word gabor is used in scripture is it referring to giants because sometimes it's used to reference David's mighty men, for example. And so you really have to look at the context of the passage um, to, to glean what it is it's saying. But here we know it's, it's speaking about um, Nimrod becoming a giant or becoming this Nephilim. And, you know, he wasn't born with a phenotype of the Nephilim, but because he defiled his genome through engaging in those ritualistic sex acts, that flipped the switch. And so, again, that's why it's so important to understand that the meaning of these Hebrew words. So if we put this into context, so back to Nimrod's grandfather, Ham, You know, Ham, through his iniquity of disrespectfully gazing upon Noah's nakedness, that created this predisposition for sexual perversion within his children and grandchildren. So that's that epigenetics that we're talking about. And so then Ham's iniquity actually led Noah to curse his bloodline. And that, in conjunction with um, Ham's wife being a likely carrier of the Nephilim gene, that actually set the stage for the Nephilim phenotype to emerge after the flood. So, you know, it was because of those deviant sex acts that Nimrod engaged in, those flipped the switch of the epigenetic marker because that Nephilim gene was laying dormant in the bloodline, but he flipped that switch. And that's how he became a mighty one or a giant or a demigod. And then we think, you know, if you, if you look at Nimrod's life, um, you know, he really had this desire for control and domination over others. And, you know, he suppressed his subjects using fear and intimidation. And that's one of the hallmark traits of the Nephilim. And, you know, as I mentioned before, Nimrod, he was this, you know, first attempt by Satan of creating an antichrist. Um, And it's widely agreed upon among scholars that Nimrod was the first world leader in human history. And so really he was the first globalist, so to speak. 
he was filled with pride and arrogance. And he thought like his own hands could actually create something that would outmaneuver almighty God. So, you know, and, and putting these pieces together, you know, again, my, my naturally inquisitive mind, I was like, why were they building the tower of Babel? And it's interesting because, you know, in scripture, it actually says um, so that they may make a name for themselves, or it says so that we may make a name for ourselves. And again, digging into the Hebrew, um, the Hebrew meaning for that phrase is that they want to build a monument or a memorial in order to draw fame and glory to them. That really gives us a window into the motivation that Nimrod and his followers had. They wanted to be made known. They wanted, you know, this glory for themselves so that subsequent generations would actually revere them. And that essentially is the pride of life. And so this helps us understand what Gabors or giants or Nephilim they seek after. They want to be men of renown. And that's what it says in Genesis 6, 4 about the Nephilim. So then we think about this, this Nephilim agenda that, you know, this desire for fame and glory is part of what drives it because Nephilim hosts, they want to have this godlike status and, you know, this pride they have, it causes them to be brash, but thankfully we know that pride comes before the fall. And I think about, you know, Proverbs sixteen eighteen says pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Mm-hmm. And I think about, you know, it's been said that symbolism will be their downfall. And that's actually um, their symbolism is what helped me trace the Nephilim agenda from the days of Noah all the way to our current day. That's amazing. That's a wealth of information. So it sounds like these Nephilim hosts and then the hybrids who are in the rebellion of God, their actions, what their goal is, is the opposite of a broken and contrite spirit. It's like their exactly. frequency, their whole output, their whole idea is to undermine um, They don't want to give God the glory. They want to receive it themselves. And that clearly, in my mind, puzzle pieces and, and clicks together what we see happening throughout you know, the historical documents when we see all these different cultures and they go to war with each other and we see the ambition to conquer and conquest other nations mm-hmm. and see that uh, greed for power. I um wrote a small piece of poetry recently and the Holy Spirit was leading me to understand that we can never really have a positive impact in the world that we're living in this, this temporary home where we're dwelling. We can't have a positive impact if our love for power exists over our love of our neighbor in our household. If we're desiring Mm -hmm power this uh, this ideologies in our mind to you know be a great person or to have fame and fortune because the world wants to train you to think that way i grew up very secular and it was like what are you going to do with your life and people would say to me oh i see you have these gifts and these potentials and they'd always compartmentalize me and make me feel like uh, they hadn't i was not good enough to do anything but it secretly in my heart i knew I don't want to be great. I just want to connect. I just don't want to be abused. Mm. I want to be loved, right? Like I had this desire, like, please don't hurt me. I think and the enemy used fear against me in many ways to keep my mouth closed. But I look at it now and it just makes so much sense hearing you talk because uh, <laughs> there's a bunch of times where scriptures are popping into my head that are like making <laughs> a confirmation. And I'm like, yes, yes, Lord. Like 
I understand this is what we're supposed to be doing is talking with each other, sharing our gifts. Frequency is like a really big topic of conversation in my life because it was the strangest thing, Laura. I'm reading Leviticus. I want to say 19. I hope I'm not getting that wrong. And it talks. God's giving a commandment and he says, hey, do not mix wool and linen. You know, he's saying, do not mix your cattle. Do not plant seeds of a different kind in the same plot. And I'm going mm-hmm. with fancy talk in order for them to be a separate group of people within the nation of that time, of, of their time. And I got that poke that you talk about, that kind of like that little magnetic thing in your belly that just says, no, I got to go this direction. I, there's something here. And here to find out through secular research this is a non-biblical doctor that i found online who talks about the frequency of wool and linen being at a uh, 5000 output and that mm. they would cancel each other out if you wore them together and it blew my mind cuz i'm going this guy is literally verbatim stating what god said thousands of years ago and now tech, you know science you know is finally kind of catching up and giving um truth uh, the statement of acknowledgement of what the Bible says. I don't think this guy knew that at all because there was no attribution to God's word being the ultimate truth. But I knew through my biblical filter when I heard that, Lord, knowledge does increase and men are traveling to and fro. And and the days of Noah are kind of manifesting again in the times we live in. And as Mm -hmm. I hear you talk and other uh, people that have been significant in my life, sharing what the days of Noah look like what the Nephilim agenda really is because they disguise it so well. It's such a well-organized attack from the enemy. It makes me question, well, why isn't the body of Christ on the same page? I uh, exactly. actually had talked yeah. with the pastor this morning and you know, he's a friend of mine and we were talking earlier today and I was sharing with him. I can't wait to see the churches the, the body of Christ, not the denominational preferences or the buildings, but I can't wait to see people come into the humility and the agreement, dealing with the crux of the issue, which we know is the sin. Uh, we are falling, right? We all have been measured against the, the stick of God, right? His minimum requirement and fallen short. And I can't wait to see people agree on the Messiah who has come in the flesh and laid down his life and rose up again. And I don't know why we treat, um, not me in particular or, or you, but why people would treat church as a club where there's no supernatural element or no desire to understand the things we're talking about tonight. If you strip the Bible of all the supernatural content, it's genealogies and people wandering around in the desert. Bible's a supernatural document. I think Chuck Missler used to say, it's a supernatural document from outside the time domain. God is omnipotence. He's alpha and omega. And he does want us to know these details. Laura, honestly, you have me on cloud nine listening to you. And thank you for allowing me to just reciprocate. It's coming out organically at this point. I want to know, how did you trace the Nephilim agenda from the days of Noah to the U.S. dollar? How did you, how, how did you do that? Please explain. Really, it surface throughout my investigation, I kept finding two symbols in particular that are a constant thread all throughout history that really connect the Nephilim agenda. And those two symbols are the color red and the circumpunct, which is the circle with the dot. And um, I'll focus a little bit more on the color red because it really is fascinating to me because it unpacks 
a lot about Esau and Edom and, and the Edomites. So the color red, you know, it's indelibly linked to the Edomites. The first mention of the Hebrew word red in scripture is Adamoni, and it it's in reference to when Esau was born. And it means, you know, reddish of the hair or complexion. And so it turns out that Esau is actually really important to the storyline of the Nephilim agenda because this transformation took place when Esau became Edom. Now, the Hebrew word for Edom means or is Adam, and it means to be red. And so, you know, my naturally inquisitive mind, like, what the heck does it mean to be red? So I started by looking at the biblical meaning of the color red. And, you know, there's there's the redemptive purpose of the color red. And we see that through, you know, the blood of the Passover lamb and the blood of Jesus that washes us white as snow. And so that's the redemptive purpose of the color red. But there's also numerous connections throughout scripture of, you know, the defiled aspect of the color red aligning with the seed of Satan. And we see that, you know, in Isaiah 1, for example, um, red is associated with sin and also, you know, the blood of evil deeds. And then chaos, death, and destruction in Revelation 6, uh, then red represents Satan himself in Revelation 12, and then the beast of mystery Babylon in Revelation 17. So with Esau choosing to be red, you know, that choice actually had substantial ramifications upon his generational line. You know, when Esau branded himself red or Edom, um, he willingly traded his birthright for red stew. And I find that fascinating. And it's in, it's in Genesis 25, 29 through 30. And I'll read that passage. It says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was called Edom. So, you know, something much deeper than actually just Esau's desire for red lentil stew was at work here. He sealed a transaction and it was one that would constrict his allegiance to a particular seed. So in essence, what he did is he aligned himself with red, which is the seed of Satan, and he rejected the birthright blessings of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. On that fateful day, what he did was he separated himself from Yahweh, the God of his fathers. So when I just, you know, started digging into that a little bit further, I realized, okay, I need to, I need to really understand as much as I can about Esau's personality as character traits, because as I was um, formulating this proposed criteria for Nephilim host, I drew upon, you know, all these examples in scripture. Uh, and so Esau was one of those. So in Genesis 25, 27, you know, it talks about Esau being this cunning hunter, you know, he was a man of the field. Well, the Hebrew word for hunter is Saeed, and it means um, prey taking and hunting, but it comes from a root word, sued, which means to lie in wait, to chase, or to take provision. So I'm beginning to, you know, kind of get this character sketch in my mind of what Esau is like. You know, he was this rugged man. He was an outdoorsman, you know, probably really skilled at hunting, loved the thrill of the hunt, you know, stalking his prey and then moving in for the kill. 
Where it became even more interesting is when I realized that there's also a figurative meaning of the root word sued, and it means it, it describes someone who lies in wait to catch a human. Oh, and wow. this means essentially that, you know, it, it's it's speaking about someone who is trying to entrap another person for the intent to exploit for personal gain. Now, that's what I was um, gleaning from scripture, but then I also turned to an extra biblical text called the book of Joshua, and it actually provides some fascinating details about Esau's personality, but also about the events that lead up to the trading of his birthright. And so I'm going to read um, from Joshua 27, because this is um, really gives us some interesting clarity. It says, and Esau at the time after the death of Abraham frequently went in the field to hunt. And Nimrod, king of Babel, the same was Amraphel, also frequently went with his mighty men to hunt in the field and to walk about with his men in the cool of the day. And Nimrod was observing Esau all the days, for a jealousy was formed in the heart of Nimrod against Esau all the days. And on a certain day, Esau went in the field to hunt, and he found Nimrod walking in the wilderness with his two men. And all his mighty men and his people were with him in the wilderness, but they removed at a distance from him, and they went from him in different directions to hunt. And Esau concealed himself for Nimrod, and he lurked for him in the wilderness. And Nimrod and two of his men that were with him came to the place where they were, when Esau started suddenly from his lurking place, drew his sword, and hastened and ran to Nimrod and cut off his head. So... This story actually, it it brings to light this conniving, deceitful, murderous, deceiving aspect to Esau's personality. And it, this is the hunting expedition that actually leads up to the familiar story in Genesis 25. You know, it, it's this that Esau comes in from the field, faint, weary, and famished. And when we realize that it's because he exerted all this energy, you know, killing Nimrod and two of his men. And then, of course, he was on the run from the rest of Nimrod's men when he runs into the tent and he finds Jacob making this red lentil stew. And so, you know, I'm I'm asking myself, what is with this red lentil stew? Like, why does the Bible get that specific? Yes. Well, it turns out that this lentil stew was a traditional meal of comfort that the eldest son would prepare for the grieving father. Well, this is what it kind of brings to light this bigger picture. And that is, you know, at this point, Abraham had died and Isaac was grieving the death of Abraham and Esau and Jacob um, are 15 years old at this point. Well, Esau's the firstborn, so he should be the one in the tent making this red lentil stew. But instead, he's out on the field killing others. Well, wow. this this is the backdrop that leads to the transformation of Esau to Edom. So Esau chose to be red by covering his hands with this murderous blood. You know, instead of fulfilling his role as the loving firstborn son, being in the tent, making this meal to comfort his father, he was grieving. So when we understand all this, it makes so much more sense why God says, Jacob, I love and Esau, I hate. Now, this became the genesis of the color red becoming a bit of a calling card for the Nephilim agenda. And when we when we think about it, this transformation from Esau to Edom 
like I said earlier, it had substantial ramifications upon his bloodline. So to give you an example, um, Esau had a son named Iliaphaz, and Iliaphaz had a Horite concubine named Timnah. So Timnah bore Iliaphaz a son, and they named him Amalek. So what's interesting, too, is when we try and understand who the Horites are, the Horites are listed in Genesis 14, and they're listed among you know, this list of tribes of giants, but it's not thought that they themselves were giants, but more that they intermingled with the giants. So in other words, they interbred and they propagated that hybrid race. So for Amalek, you have on his father's side, he's Edomite. And on his mother's side, he's Horite. So more than likely he has these Nephilim genes within him. Well, it's interesting because Amalek's name means blood licker, as in someone who devours something and licks up blood. A vampire. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So, and and that tie, I'll tie that back in in just a minute, because it, it's really interesting what we see in our current day around um, blood. So, you know, throughout my book, the Holy Spirit led me on uh, this treasure hunt, and it really was following the trail of the Edomites. And as I did that, I I began to notice all throughout scripture examples of Nephilim traits within the Edomites. Now, one of the physical traits is red hair, and that's one of the four physical traits that I list um, for Nephilim hosts. But I want to say this because um, I I obviously don't want to offend anyone that has red hair. Um, My grandmother had red hair and she was my spiritual mentor. I mean, she was an amazing woman of God. So I'm not suggesting that just because you have red hair means you're a Nephilim host. You know, we, we don't want to draw conclusions based on one genetic marker alone. You know, we want a cluster of traits, just like I wouldn't diagnose someone with schizophrenia just because, you know, they had one symptom. We have to look for a cluster of symptoms But what I found is, you know, as I was scouring through all these historical documents, it became undeniable that there was a connection between red hair and other Nephilim traits. So, you know, um, whether that was the elongated skulls of Paracas, Peru, or it was the red haired cannibals that terrorized the Paiute tribe in, in Nevada, the Terran Basin mummies in China, the Celts, the Scythians, or the Khazarians, uh, it really became clear that red hair can be associated with other Nephilim traits. And then I had further confirmation of this, you know, red being a calling card of the Nephilim agenda in understanding the uh, meaning of the name Rothschild. So Rothschild means red shield. And the Rothschilds are arguably some of the most influential Nephilim hosts of the common era. But then if you fast forward to our current day, you know, we think about how the color red symbolizes the Nephilim agenda in our current day. And I think about Maria Abramovich and her spirit cooking. You know, she has this obsession of using blood as her medium for her artistic expression. Then also we think about, you know, the red shoes that symbolize pedophilia. And actually um, pedophilia is one of the 19 behavioral characteristics that I have um, for Nephilim hosts. Then even, you know, the term, the financial term in the red, meaning, you know, being in debt. Now, um, I cover this, obviously, in way more detail in my book, but the roots of the Federal Reserve 
actually extend back to Genesis 3.13 when, when Eve says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And that when we look at that Hebrew word for deceive, it's nausea. And there's um, a Hebrew and English lexicon known as Brown Drivers Briggs. And it defines nausea as to lend on interest or usury or to make someone a, or to become a creditor. So in other words, this Hebrew word for nausea means to make someone a debtor. The entire Federal Reserve System is rooted in nausea, which is the it's deception. It's the language of the Nephilim who are the seed of Satan. And it, this deception creates debtors. And we are under this enslavement system. So that's kind of how this, this trail led when I followed the color red. And, you know, as I said in the beginning, the Lord's really given me this message um, to bring forth to people to help create this big picture of understanding the Nephilim agenda, because even though it was launched during the days of Noah, you know, on Mount Hermon, it did not end with the flood and the Nephilim agenda is active today. And I think it's really important that we understand how it impacts us. <laughs> I wish I could like take notes. I'm like falling out of my chair. I'm in the coordinates right now. <laughs> I have so many questions. Um, okay, let me start with this just real quick so I don't lose this one. I looked in the concordance and in 1 Samuel 16, 12, it talks about David being Rudy, which is H132. So when I clicked on yes. that, it is it looks like it's a definition from the H119, which is reddish hair or complexion. So please yes. tell me that every single person with red hair isn't a candidate. I, I did my ancestry DNA. My beard, I have like one black hair, one whitish blonde hair, and one red hair. It scared me when you said that. I'm like, no, there's like a couple of red hairs on my beard. So I'm not, I'm just trying to be facetious and we're laughing about it. But I've heard you talk before about there's like certain criterias for physical traits and then like demonic activities like as in personality or operation or, or dark desires that would make someone a Nephilim host candidate. But I just think that's it's interesting. I couldn't help but notice as I researched on Hitler coming up to that episode, you know, one of his things, uh, other than the public declaration of the alien mythos, alien religion, where they're talking with this great white brotherhood that's they're downloading information from. Mm -hmm. Hitler has this idea of cleansing the rest of the world to purify this like blonde hair and blue eyed race. And mm -hmm. looking at the map, uh, you see the least amount of people groups are going to pertain to light skin, light hair and light eyes. I think during Hitler's time, I don't have this number exact. I'm trying to uh, remember, but it was somewhere around like 24% of the world population had light hair, light eyes and, and very light skin. And then I think somewhere around 2010, there was another study done, which it dropped drastically. And one of his, Hitler's regimes was trying to preserve this Aryan race, you know, this Aryan philosophy uh, religion that has kind of went rogue from some of the other old pantheons. That is mm -hmm. weird to me. You know, these Nephilim would have, do you think that they chose people of reddish hair, reddish skin? Or do you think it's actually a product of the joining of the Beni Elohim and the Benath Adam, Genesis 6, 4, when the sons of God see the daughters of Adam, do you think that the, the procreation there, that unholy union, do you think it produced the reddish hair? And then what will we do with David being, you know, he's considered Rudy, uh, 1 Samuel 17, 42. 
it says, and when the Philistines looked about and saw David, he was disdained by him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. What do you think's going on there? I really need some clarity on David's situation as well with him being of reddish tint or hair. Do you think the enemy perverted red and it still shows itself in a clean lineage? What's your take on that? Well, that I think that really highlights uh, the point I, I want to make so that we don't come to the conclusion that everyone with red hair is a Nephilim host. You know, David, like you said, was ready of complexion or hair. And so, you know, I didn't talk about this, but we see in Saul, Saul actually comes from um, a, a bloodline that that has potentially Nephilim genes within his bloodline. And but Saul was given the choice, you know, what side of the seed war is he going to line with? Mm-hmm. I think we each have that choice. So this is where the hope comes in that if, you know, if we have defiled bloodlines, um, which most of us have generational iniquity that flows in our bloodline and it affects us. But the good news is, is that we can cleanse our bloodline and, you know, our choices back to those epigenetic markers that I talked about, our choices really define who we become and our generations moving forward. So you think about David. So David was born with red hair. Now, again, I'm not saying, you know, everyone with red hair has Nephilim genes. But let's say David did. His choices cleansed his bloodline, and he aligned himself with the seed of Eve, humanity. He aligned himself, you know, coming under the authority of Almighty Yahweh, and, and we see, obviously, from his generation comes the Messiah. So whereas Saul, he aligned himself with the seed of Satan um, when he failed to completely destroy the Amalekites. And it, the reason being is because King Agag, you know, God had asked him to haram. Haram is the Hebrew term for destroy or completely eradicate the Amalekites. And it was because they had mixed species. Well, King Agag was a giant and Saul did not completely destroy the Amalekites. He preserved King Agag. And Josephus actually talks about it's because King Saul found Agag to be handsome and worthy of preservation. And so at that moment, Saul chose to preserve a defiled genome in Agag rather than walk in obedience to the Lord and destroy the Amalekites. That's where he chose to align with the seed of Satan. Wow. Um, Whereas David never made that choice to align with the seed of Satan. So hopefully that, that brings some hope too for all of us that, you know, our, our choices really matter both in a positive way and a negative way. And the choices of our fathers and grandfathers and mothers and grandmothers, their choices impact us today. But thankfully, you know, we've learned how to cleanse our generational line um, and, and make the choice of aligning ourselves with God. So does that help? Yes, and we're going to have a moment of celebration for all the listeners that have red hair. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man, that is awesome. And it, it just makes me think David's a man after God's own heart. And it's the choice, mm-hmm. right? Joshua, who says, choose you today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And mm-hmm. nothing's too hard for God. You know, some things are impossible with man, but nothing is too difficult for God. And that's refreshing because I really was wrestling with, oh my gosh, what is going to be the outcome of this kind of research? I know that mm-hmm. with my family line, there's sin that chases at my heels and it showed itself through many different difficult ways. Now I've told the listeners that I'm going to be doing an explanation video. I've had plenty of people ask, what's this peculiar past that you reference and some of the things that you've experienced? And my goal is to just, I wanted it to be the right time. I wanted to slow down and just allow God to give me the okay, but not that there's anything in the significance of what we're talking about tonight. But there's some generational things that have showed itself mm-hmm. throughout my lifetime that I find I find out, you know, my dad went through similar to that age. And then a grandfather went through. It's almost like these things want to show back up. And as you put it so well, they want the switch to be flipped, that choice to be made so it can activate, whether it be that frequency or that changing because the enemy doesn't sleep. They study us inside and out and Mm -hmm. they want us obviously to be in a fallen state where there's no salvation. It makes so much sense listening to you talk. And I know I forgot a couple of my questions already as I'm (laughs) rambling here, but it just really makes me wonder the rate of people that are confused and have no idea considering the candence and, and the terms, this, this language that you're bringing to the table, this hermeneutical hygiene that is challenging me to once again, with fear and trembling, ask God, Lord, use me and just show me what's needed. And God, please allow me to plant and water in your kingdom. I think that that's like the best humility I can show myself is to help somebody move that refrigerator. Donna, if you're listening to this, which is my next door neighbor, you're welcome for helping you move the fridge the other day. I'll do it anytime. <laughs> but it's so awesome to be able to connect this and just the encouragement that's going to come from being able to break down some of these terms and understand this information that's been hidden by the enemy within culture, within religion. Laura, what I want to ask you is how does the Nephilim agenda impact us today, 2022? What are some things that we can identify that is directly against this generation? Yeah. Well, I'm imagining that a lot of your listeners by now are probably familiar with a gentleman named Yoval Noah Harari. He is uh, Klaus Schwab's right-hand man. He's a historian. And I came across him probably about six to eight months ago. You know, I was, I was just doing some research, and I um, came across a presentation that he gave at the World Economic Forum in 2018, and it was during their annual meeting, and he was on the main stage. So he spoke after Angela Merkel and before Emmanuel Macron. So that tells you how big the stage was that he had, and his presentation was entitled, Will the Future Be Human? And I want to read... um, something that he spoke in that presentation. He said, we are probably one of the last generations of homo sapiens. Within a century or two, earth will be dominated by entities that are more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals or from chimpanzees. Because in the coming generations, we learn how to engineer bodies and brains and minds. This will be the main product of the 21st century economy, not vehicles, textiles, or weapons, but bodies, brains, and minds. 
So, you know, from this quote, you can see that Nephilim hosts, they are actively advancing ways to replace humans. And if they're successful and turning us into hybrids, this could disrupt our ability to commune with creator God. And, you know, the speed at which they're progressing towards accomplishing this goal is alarming. And so I want to give a few examples of this. Now, in 2004, there was a scientist, his name is Dean Hamar, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he discovered the VMAT2 gene is responsible in part for our connection or our capacity, at least, to have a connection with creator God. And he renamed the VMAT2 gene the God gene. Now, of course, this created a media frenzy. In fact, I think he was even on the cover of Time magazine. But subsequent studies after that actually showed that if you alter this gene, it could reduce a person's ability to make a spiritual connection with God. Now, it didn't take long for Pentagon researchers to actually capitalize on this because in 2005, the Department of Defense developed what was called the FUNVAX. And there's nothing fun about it. It stands for Fundamentalism Vaccine. And what the FUNVAX is, is it's an airborne virus that infects populations considered high risk for religious fundamentalism. So this, this virus, this airborne virus, it can actually decrease the expression of the VMAT2 gene. And one of the ways that they measured whether or not the FUNVAX was effective is they looked at you know, the population in which they released this airborne virus, was there a decrease in attendance at religious activities? Also, they, um, they studied the communication of this people group to see if there was an increase in expressed discontent towards God. So they listened in on phone calls and um, emails and other forms of communication. So, I want that to sink in for a minute because essentially the Pentagon has figured out a way to disrupt our ability to, to commune with and connect with our creator. And it, you know, it really makes me think about some of what I'm hearing um, from people is just their, you know, the struggle they have in connecting with God right now. Some, some people who used to be able to hear, the voice of the Lord are struggling more and more. And, you know, it just, I don't know if this is what's in the backdrop, but it, it certainly makes me wonder. And then progressing in 2008, um, there is um, a person named Bruce Charlton, and he's editor-in-chief of Medical Hypotheses. It's a journal. And he wrote an article about the emerging technology of geno-spirituality. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard that before, but I want to just read something that he wrote in this article. He said, if technologies are devised, which can conveniently and safely engineer these genes causal of spiritual and religious behaviors, then people may become able to choose their degree of religiosity or spiritual sensitivity. So essentially what this means is that genospirituality has the potential of controlling what we actually believe in. And so scientists can engineer us to believe in animism, for example, or shamanism, and they can steer us away from relationship with Jesus. Then in 2010, 
geneticist Craig Ventner, um, he created synthetic life forms through bioengineering a cell. And his critics actually accuse him of playing God. And they warned us that these artificial organisms could actually be used for a biological weapon. Now, of course, this makes me wonder about the virus that was released in 2020. But what I, I want to be clear, so what Ventner did is he actually altered the genetic code of life. And that's led experts to liken his work to the development of the nuclear weapon. Because Ventner's technology, if you pair that with CRISPR technology, which is essentially like gene editing software, what that means is that scientists can engineer anything to create synthetic life. And by doing this, they're actually usurping creator God. Now, Ventner, um, actually, he acknowledges that they have the capacity of creating new organisms um, by attaching additional genes to make proteins and that they could use those artificial organisms in vaccines. So again, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, what's going on. And then when we think about the progression of both nanotechnology and AI, what we find is that scientists are attempting to create a global super brain. So in 2019, these scientists from the Human Brain Cloud Interface Project, they have this to say about nanobots. They write, nanobots would navigate the human vasculature, cross the blood-brain barrier, and precisely auto-position themselves among or even within brain cells. They would then wirelessly transmit encoded information to and from a cloud-based supercomputer network for real-time brain state monitoring and data extracting. Now, I realize that's a mouthful, but essentially what they're communicating is their goal with this brain cloud interface is to connect a network of human brains with AI to form a hive mind. Now, that is the ultimate technology of mind control. And... You know, we really have to ask ourselves, has the stage been set through the COVID-19 injection? You know, let's not forget that Moderna calls their mRNA technology an operating system. So with all that, you know, how do we overcome this onslaught in attack? And, you know, the only way that Nephilim hosts can hijack our bodies and turn us into hybrids is if they hijack our mind first. And Nephilim hosts are actually very adept at using mind control tactics because they realize that fear is one of the primary drivers of mind control. Now, fear, it's interesting because emotions have different frequencies and fear is one of the lower frequency emotions, whereas love is one of the higher frequency emotions. And of course, you know, the propaganda machine of mainstream media, they understand that if they have this constant flow of fear-based stories They'll be able to keep the masses stuck in their primitive brain where they can't access rational thoughts. You know, fear, it originates from that place in the brain that's called the amygdala. And, you know, it's, it's referred to as the primitive brain, the hindbrain, or the reptilian brain. And when we, you know, when we're fearful, our ability to process nuanced information is impaired. So we're more likely just to blindly follow others rather than use critical thinking skills. And I think that's what we've seen in the last two years in the population. And so I just want to encourage your listeners that we have to understand that there's this battle that's raging at these lower emotional frequency ranges, you know, through all the fear-based messaging and the shame-based messaging. In fact, 
shame is the lowest frequency emotion there is. Um, but the good news is that the Lord gives us strategy of how to overcome that. And part of that strategy is in first John four eighteen, which says there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. You know, when we think about ways that we can overcome fear, the best way is if we draw near to the one that has perfect love, and that's Yeshua, that's Jesus. And when you think about it on a scientific level, again, with fear being one of those lower emotional frequencies and love being a higher emotional frequency, you can just think about love overcomes fear in that way. And and I think that's so important for us because we have to take every thought captive and resist fear. You know, when we have prolonged fear in our lives, not only does it weaken our immune system, but it drags us down to that lower emotional frequency range where the battle is raging. And, you know, our father is so good. You know, he knows this about how we're designed. And that's why, you know, in the Old Testament alone, he warns us 52 times to fear not. And I think a lot about that passage in 2 Timothy 1.7 that says, you know, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And we can't have a sound mind if we live in fear. And so that's why embracing love and exuding um, those heartfelt emotions, um, including love and compassion and gratitude and empathy. You know, we literally can drive fear out of the atmosphere, out of the room, wherever we, wherever we go, if we choose to walk in love. So I just want to encourage everyone with that, no matter what impact this Nephilim agenda is trying to have on us, we can be victorious. We can overcome this. Transhumanism. We see that coming, coming to a forefront and the attack there. And God says worship in spirit and in truth. And, you know, everything that you just depicted sounds like that's a direct attack on us being able to connect with God through spirit and through truth, trying to shut the Mm -hmm. body down and and take away our ability to be able to connect with Father God. And it also brings me back while you talk about frequency and fear, linen and wool. Right. Forget how many times I counted that was in the Old Testament alone, but I started to see this repetitiveness of the scriptures declaring any holy or like a holy man, whether he be of the temple or a priest or an angelic host were always depicted. They were wearing white linens and they were glowing, Mm. right? And linen with its frequency output, the human body has relatively 100 to 110 of a natural frequency output on the surface of the skin from research that I've done, which is secular. So it may be Mm -hmm. altered a little bit in reality, but that when we God is declaring, hey, don't mix linen and wool. He's actually telling his people, hey, it'll cancel that frequency out. You know, God creates all of everything. He, he, He knows the beginning from the end. It's us as people that have the difficulty accepting the word of God until we prove it with science. And then most of the time, those organizations are corrupting the information and concealing the truth, which we can see evident through just alone what we've talked about in this episode, let alone all the other rabbit trails of what goes on in the world today. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that wearing linen or wool actually promotes healing. So most hospitals will use a linen badge, a small piece of linen over the wound. If you have a surgery of some sort, it's actually known scientifically to promote healing. 
God gives mm. us the recipe in his word. When he the Bible, does. It's there. Yeah. And it's like the cultures and the time slots in history, the time cards, whichever one you pull and look at throughout history, they're the ones who have the issue with it, typically because the head down, these Nephilim agenda organizations are training the masses to just be sequacious and to just go with the flow and to not question anything and to just mm -hmm. be a good little boy and girl and don't ask any questions, right? We see that from the Vatican standpoint. Don't read the Bible. We'll, we'll depict it for you. You show up here and do what we say. And uh, God's word is truth. And he has a recipe there for us. It talks about it being there for our correction, for our rebuke, for our encouragement, for our learning that the man of God would lack nothing throughout his process. First mm -hmm. Timothy 6.11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness, turning away from the darkness that's all around us. When you talk about the frequency of fear and the battle being in our mind and, and what we believe, Proverbs says, so a man thinketh he is. God has called you and he has covered the chasm through Christ. The Messiah has come and covered the chasm, what we could not do for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, his only unique, his only son, that whoever believes would be saved. And the deeper I go, Laura, the more I understand that all of, all of this is a direct attack against Yahweh, a direct mm -hmm. attack against the creator God. That was beautiful what you just shared. I appreciate that. Thank you. We're, we're winding down. Do you, you want to tell the audience where they can find you and close this out? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So probably the best place to start is my website, which is no longer enslaved.com. And then from there, um, you can access, you know, if you want the deeper dive, um, my book certainly is the deep dive, which is the roots of the federal reserve. You can either order it from my website, or it's also available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And then I actually, I started a YouTube channel and Rumble channel called No Longer Enslaved. Uh, and I am in the midst of doing a 10 part series called the impact of the Nephilim agenda today. So if your listeners are interested in diving a little bit deeper into some of the concepts uh, I talked about today, they can find me either on YouTube or Rumble. And then I'm also on Telegram. My public channel on Telegram is Laura Sanger 444 Hertz. So that's how they can find me. Oh, on my website too. If you're interested, I do monthly articles. I write on, you know, COVID-19. I write on globalism, the Federal Reserve. I write on um, health and family advocacy, those types of things. Um, people can sign up uh, if they want to get my monthly articles as well. And you could not have chosen a better name than No Longer Enslaved because <laughs> the chains will start to be broken. You'll start to connect the dots and we can take God's word at face value and trust him through the process of this life. And Laura, my honor, thank you for joining me. Oh, it was wonderful to be with you, Rod, and especially on your birthday. Have a great <laughs> rest of the birthday celebration. Now that I'm out of a season of hiding, I thank you for everybody who prayed. I know you guys love these episodes. Share this with a friend, a family member, a coworker. Coming to you from Southeastern Pennsylvania, 
God bless America. Goodbye.